morning, and welcome to episode 770 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I am Ben Lindbergh of 538, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello. Yo. My award apathy has risen or sunk to the point where I didn't even look at the results yesterday. I was... I was getting ready to go to bed, and I remembered that there had been award results, and I thought of checking, and I thought, nah, I'll, I'll look in the morning. And I looked. Eventually, you did. And I said, yeah, okay. I, uh, I, I'm glad you brought this up, because I actually have reconsidered my position on awards apathy. I feel like the, the what I expressed a week ago does not actually fairly reflect what I believe. I thought it did, uh-huh. but it doesn't. In fact, I think that... It's not so much that I uh, think that the awards matter any less than I used to, but rather that, and it's not that I even mind seeing lots of discussion about the awards, even though I'm not all that interested. I think what it is, is I, I dread having to comment myself on them. I think this is a defense posture hmm. where I don't want to, uh, to, uh, to, to comment on them uh-huh. like I'm I'm content with them existing and I'm worried that if I pay too much attention to it uh, I am going it is uh, it will be insisted by by whatever by either my own sense of obligation or by external forces that I comment on them and so really I I am I fear I fear mm. the awards voting I fear it Ben uh-huh but I actually don't think I have any negativity toward it other than as it affects uh, my schedule. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have much negativity toward it because the results are far better than they used to be. But I, I would actually look forward to having a vote, which I have not had because I'm in the New York chapter of the BBWAA and mm-hmm. every other writer is also in the New York chapter. And so it rotates randomly or in some fashion and it hasn't come to me yet. But if I had a vote or I had a Hall of Fame vote, I would enjoy that, I think. Oh, yeah. 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 That'd be fun. I'd give it lots of thought. I guess I'd write something about it. I don't know. (laughs) The world doesn't need another explanation of why someone voted for someone, but I would have fun. How much thought would it take you? Like, realistically, how long would you uh, spend on this? And uh, I guess how long would it take you to reach your final three or your final five or your final ten? Yeah. And beyond that, would you simply be talking yourself out of the position and changing it to be wrong? It depends on the year, obviously. There are some years where it's really obvious, and then there are some years where it's this year's NL Cy Young or this year's AL MVP where there are really good arguments for both sides. So if it were one of the tight years where there were multiple deserving candidates, then I think I would spend... Two hours on it. Two hours on it. <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. I think that's the extent to which I could dissect the numbers and potentially come up with something new. Would you write your column about it before or after you submit? Because um, I feel like the best process would probably, well, uh, best or worst. Boy, I, I was going to say the best process might be writing your column so that you actually do force yourself to think through it in ways that, like a lot of times you don't really know how to think through it until you start trying to say the words. On the other hand, then you might find yourself choosing 
whichever is most narratively satisfying mm-hmm. and whichever gets you the next paragraph and gets you to the end. Yeah. Uh, and whichever supports the best uh, one-liners. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm not sure which would be worse, which would be better. Yeah, it probably would be better to do a Socratic method style column. Mm-hmm. Interrogate yourself as you write it and come to a conclusion. Yeah. Maybe it would be just good to document your thoughts. Just do a just do a stream of consciousness column on how you came to your vote. Yeah, there's that old thing though where you make a decision and then you whatever decision that you make, you will then find reasons to support it. Uh-huh. And um and that in a way once you're wrong, the more you think about it, the more certain you become of the wrong thing. Yeah. You will you will become like, a, you know, very firm in your position the more you talk about it. It's almost better not to talk about it, uh-huh. maybe. Right. It's also, what is it? There's another thing where if you ask people to think about how they're enjoying the movie while they're watching the movie, like to be thinking, is this a good movie? Uh-huh. They will... They will generally like the movie less uh uh-huh so they'll like award voting less (laughs) no i'm no i'm i'm suggesting that if you are too too in your own head while you're making this decision yeah you might end up skewing your own actual feel like you can maybe make a case i look there's i i still think that there's a pretty good case that uh i i can't beat a war uh, war sword. I right. don't want to. I don't want to admit that. I don't think it's any fun. I don't know that I would ever be able to do that. But probably realistically, I would trust at least of of many of the voters. I would probably trust a war search more than their own a thoughtful. But I guess I want the thoughtfulness. I guess it doesn't matter if it's right or not. I would rather it be thoughtful. The point is to get perspectives. Yeah. Yeah, I do find though that when I'm when I look at the ballots, I immediately say I I like kind of congratulate the ones who got it right, but the ones who got it right, they just it's like the ones that most line up to a war sort. So why not just sort by war? Yeah, I mean I don't want anybody <laughs> sorting by, by war. That's my real problem with awards is I don't think you can do better than that horrible, boring method of taking a leaderboard right. and clicking. <laughs> At the top of it, so that it'll sort. Of course, you know, pitching war leaderboards can look very different. Yeah, but then you, well, like, you just have to pick one, right? Right. Like, there's not really a better method. I mean, you could average them, I guess. I don't yeah. know if that's been shown to be any better. But really, you, you, you still sort of have to just pick one. Yeah. Picking none of them is probably, like, you know, I don't know. Right. So who would you, would you have gone Arietta, Kershaw, or Granky? Well, I didn't devote my two hours to it because I didn't need to, but... I I probably would have said Arietta, but you kind of swayed me toward Kershaw when we talked about it on the show, and I, thought, I might I have that, ended up going that way. I think it was Joe Sheehan who said that you can go the what happened route and pick Cranky, or you can go the FIP what should have happened route and go Kershaw, uh-huh. there, but there's not really a case for Arietta above both of them. There's a case for Arietta over either of them there's a case that arietta should be second in both yeah but not first in either yeah. and yet and yet arietta won which is an interesting thing mm-hmm. yeah unless... if arietta had had his second half first and his first half second he doesn't win the Cy Young, correct right yeah unless which you just weird. want to 
recognize the guy who had the most incredible run, which yeah. is probably not a great thing to do for a full season award, but no, but I I think I would I think I think we I think I said this maybe I didn't but I think I said this in which case I would have had a reason to believe this I I think Kershaw's run was better than Arietta's run although yeah. only in the fit model not the ERA model right mm-hmm. okay also in voting news uh, wait wait hang on hang on yeah. one one last thing how many years in the last just off the top of your head you don't know this but how many years in the last twenty five do you think? Uh, each of these guys would have won the NL Cy Young. Like, if you transport Arietta to another year, uh-huh. how many years does this performance win the Cy Young? It's like 24, right, in the yeah, NL? it's got to be. Like, yeah. I, I'm trying to think, like, other than maybe, like, Kershaw 2014. Yeah. Probably beats all three of them, maybe? I mean, some Randy Johnson, Maddox years. Uh, yeah, maybe Maddox in 94, 95 would be tough and yeah there's a at least a johnson year or two most years though all three of them win they're three of the 10 best seasons since you know doc probably yeah okay uh so the other thing is you know the hall of fame has called its voting role this year and people who haven't covered baseball in a while or had their legacy or honorary votes no longer get votes not clear to me whether you could actually request to vote if you were one of those people. Anyway, some people who lost their vote are upset about it and are making the case that they have more perspective or a different perspective because they covered these players or they saw more of these players. And I've been thinking about whether there's anything to that, whether having seen a player at this level matters or makes you a more informed voter, or whether it just makes you potentially biased in some way because of some personal interaction. Is there any way in which you think that someone who covered a player is more qualified to judge that player's performance? Or is Major League Baseball just, I mean, everyone can watch the games on TV, everyone can look up the stats. They're very detailed stats. And you don't have to have seen the guy to see where he ranks on a leaderboard or know what his reputation is or have read about him. Is there any way in which you think someone who saw a player or covered a player is better qualified? I'm not sure that having covered a player, it makes you more qualified. Yeah. I th- I think having lived through his career probably does. Uh-huh. But, like... For instance, Mark McGuire, okay? Uh, this is a this is not a great example because everybody knows Mark McGuire hit 70 home runs and did the thing. But if Mark McGuire hadn't, like, you know, he hit 70 home runs one year and then he hit 56 the next or whatever. And one of those years broke the all-time home run record and was very exciting. Now, if instead of hitting 70 and 56, he had hit, well, he still would have broke the record. But let's say he hadn't broken. <laughs> like he had the same number of home runs, but they were distributed in such a way that he never topped 61. Uh-huh. That would make him a exactly as good ball player, but a worse Hall of Fame candidate, right? Yeah. I, I do think that there is some value to having created moments that nobody else created and that nobody else uh, could claim to have done. And... Living through a player's career in real time, I think probably does keep those 
amplified moments, those exclamatory moments from getting lost in the in the uh, you know in the in the uh, river of tens of thousands of of uh, events in a guy's career. Uh-huh. And so, like I think that David Ortiz, for instance, uh, fares better if you've lived through David Ortiz than it ever will 20, 30, 40 years from now. And I think it's a good thing. I think David Ortiz is more qualified because uh, we know exactly what the Red Sox winning in 2004 meant. We know exactly the feeling that we had when he came up. We also know that he performed extremely well. And you can get some of that by looking at his postseason performances. But I don't know that you quite really get it. So that helps. On the other hand, those can be sources of extreme bias and you can put way too much weight on those very same things. And so probably living through a guy's career uh, leads to more correct assessments of him and also more incorrect assessments of him than mm-hmm. not having. But uh, unless... I mean, it, I mean it, it's sort of like the, the five-year waiting period or whatever waiting period you put in is for historical perspective. It's so that you don't make rash judgments based on having just seen something and not having time to think about it. And you could say that having not seen a player in a sense is like a waiting period. It's someone comes along and sees how the numbers stack up and it's dispassionate and you get a, you can judge that player in comparison to other players that you haven't seen who are also in the hall of fame and see whether he measures up just based on objective things rather than what you actually saw. You could if you want it to be dispassionate. Right. I think you want to have some passion. You want to, You don't want too much passion, but you want some passion. Yeah. Right? Yeah, sure. Like I guess you want the right kind of passion. You want the passion that is placed well, not misplaced passion. Yeah. Let me ask you a hypothetical. Let's say that there was a guy who was hitting 400 into mid-September. And we got, we had this 400 chase all year long. And then at the end, he, uh, he failed to hit 400 and he hit three, you know, 91. Okay. Yeah. Now another guy hit 370 all year long and we weren't even paying attention. And then he went, you know, 16 for his last 18 and he ended up at 391. Uh But there was never a 400 chase. Does the first guy get more Hall of Fame consideration to you than the second guy? For giving us five and a half months of a legitimate, our you know our first legitimate 400 chase in 40 years, 30 yeah, years. I think he probably years. does. Okay. And he probably shouldn't, right? I mean, well, beyond a, beyond the fact that he had no, 390 and the other guy should? had 370. Do you think he should? Oh, I think he should not. I think that I'm okay with it. Uh huh. Not like I'm not putting him in the Hall of Fame for that alone, but right. I think I would. Okay. I I don't know. Look, they're all wrong. All of these all, the Hall of Fame is just it's it's all wrong unless you unless you change your mind and think there cannot be wrong that this is a a document from the people who watched 30 years of baseball choosing what mattered in uh-huh. those 30 years. Choosing as a big group in a way that should theoretically lead to a a real consensus, a real sort of sense of public opinion. Yeah. And uh, if that's what it is, then I'm fine. I, I think that that works. Now, it's partly I say that's what it is because the like the legacy that these previous generations have have 
passed along is of a very flawed Hall of Fame that cannot possibly be the other thing. Now, if if it were the other thing, if it truly were uh, the best collection of the best players uh, decided through the best and most objective means, I would want to keep it that way. Like, that might be my ideal for what the Hall of Fame would be. But at this point, we're 80 years into this experiment. Like, you're not going to get all the smudges off it. And uh, so then, the I don't know, I sort of feel like the, the best way to, to say it, to, to think about it is, oh, well, this is a smudged, this is a smudged document. The smudges are what it aspired to. The smudges are part of what made it such a lasting institution. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, you know, it just, it is always going to be that. And so once those are the parameters, then you treat it a little bit differently. I still would, you know, I still think, yes, vote for the best players, but not as nervous about passion being part uh-huh. of what people use to decide what best me- meant. Yeah. I mean, we both agreed about the Maguire thing, right? Like, you don't think that's a problem, the, the Maguire hypothetical? Probably not. No. I I don't know. I think that I think exciting things should have a place in a baseball museum in some way. Like, there should be an exhibit about the guy's 400 chase and how exciting that was. I don't know. I would like people to be able to go and relive and have some place preserve these exciting moments but i guess the i'm just not sure whether that should translate to the room with the plaques i don't know Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter that much to me (laughs) but (laughs) (laughs) yeah okay all right it matters so little that we've had this conversation about 30 times on this podcast (laughs) well we have to talk about something when you do a daily podcast Um, i like talking about it yeah I, i like talking about it too all right it just uh yeah i like talking about it but i i stopped thinking about it the moment that we stopped talking about it yeah all right um so you your shows early in the week got the interesting trades and i'm stuck with the leavings but do you think that we underrate francisco rodriguez so we were talking about craig kimbrell the other day and you were saying he's the closest thing to mariano rivera and in that he is not a fungible reliever. He's really good every year, and and his peak was better than Rivera's even. And Francisco Rodriguez, whom the Tigers just traded for, has been good for a very long time. I mean, he uh, first of all, I think the fact that he's only 33 surprised me. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's very close to 34, and 34 sounds very different to me than 33. But he obviously started very young, so that is why he's not that old. But he's been pitching since 2002 is the year when he came up and made the playoffs and was exciting. And he's still good. He's still good enough for a team to want to trade for him to be a closer. And that's a long time to be a guy who gets saves. And I guess his best self only lasted... For a few years, maybe. Maybe that's why I don't think of him quite on the Kimbrel Rivera pantheon. As a young pitcher, he was really exciting and really good, and now he's sort of settled into this good enough to close, but not good enough to have fun facts made about him territory. But mm-hmm. still, to have been in that territory for this long is impressive and rare. There was, I think that we probably, uh, underrate him now because there were two or three years where 
he wasn't very good. Yeah. And where it seemed like his career was pretty well over. And there is a, there is, he sort of fits an archetype of the former closer who gets to hang on to his prestige to some degree and often his closer role, even though he has declined and there are a lot of often closer, better relievers even on his own, his own team. Uh, and so when you see, a, generally, I think when a guy is 30, 30 plus and has a, a mountain of saves behind him and is still getting saves, even though he's not nearly as good, then we probably maybe, uh, make it a point to think less of him, to think that he's not good, uh, to put him in the sort of Valverde, uh, Raphael Soriano sort of kind of camps, uh, kind of camp. And uh, so I think that probably we were appropriate in assessing him then. And then I would guess that, yes, most of us, many of us, me, I don't know about anybody else, maybe just me, considers his last two years to have been uh, stealth great and stealth to the point that I didn't notice them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, yeah, probably if a team trades for francisco rodriguez as a team does my first reaction is okay and he's probably as good as an, uh, a number of pitchers who when they get traded i think oh <laughs> right mm. uh-huh. yeah like i mean is he any worse than houston street right now yeah probably not i don't know i'm gonna look mm. uh but you know when houston street gets traded it feels like a bigger deal like Francisco Rodriguez getting traded does to, yes, it does kind of feel like the sort of thing you tuck into another transaction analysis mm-hmm. rather than giving its it, its own file. Is he, a, do you consider Francisco Rodriguez to be a convincing FIP breaker at this stage of his career? Hmm. I hadn't thought of him that way. He hasn't been that way throughout his career. But every year since 2007, and usually by a lot. Hmm. And for his career, it's about a half a run difference. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I guess that's maybe long enough to start to think it means something. I don't know. It's hard because with relievers, they pitch 60 innings a year, and they do something for five years, and it seems really impressive. But then you realize it's it's only 300 innings, and that's like <laughs> yes. a, you know, a season and a half of a starter, and it's not that weird. But sure, maybe. Does look like those are pretty big gaps. So I'm going to uh, I'm going to I'm going to do the comparison game. So if you think of him as an ERA guy, then he is of active relievers, and partly this hurts him because it includes his decline. But of active relievers with more than 300 innings, he is 12th, uh-huh. uh, right there in between Mark Melanson and Sergio Romo, which is actually less impressive than I was expecting that <laughs> yeah. fact to be. Uh, if you go by FIP and use all the same parameters, then he is now uh, nah, not actually much worse. Uh-huh. I guess uh, a lot of relievers are at that level are kind of FIP breakers, maybe. But he's like, because uh, they tend to have, a lot of them have good Babbitts. He is like 16th between Drew Storen and Houston Street. So probably if I told you he's between Drew Storm and Houston Street and one and Sergio Romo and whoever on the other, you probably would not know which one was better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so never mind. Okay. Same fun fact. All right. He might have more. Let's see. Of active pitchers, he 
He he's only 33, as you noted. Mm-hmm. And of active pitchers who have at least 80% relief, <coughs> he is. Are we counting Joe Nathan as active? Yeah. Okay. He is fourth in innings pitched. Is Latroy Hawkins? Did he retire? I think so. Okay. So he is. He's behind only. Among actives, pitchers who pitched in 2015 and that are still uh, on a roster, he's behind Joaquin Benoit, Carlos Villanueva, and Joe Nathan. Uh, and all of them have starts. So he is the uh, most innings for any pitcher, active pitcher, without a start. Mm-hmm. All right. I could have said all the things that I said about of uh, Rodriguez about Benoit, probably. He just oh, hasn't, I think he hasn't gotten the saves, but... I think of Benoit as an elite reliever. I yeah. I don't feel like Benoit is underrated. Benoit's I mean maybe he is, but he's awesome. Like I don't have any negative feelings about Benoit, and I have lots of negative. <laughs> well, yeah, there about... there are many reasons to have negative feelings about Rodriguez. Yeah. All right, uh, I wanted to answer a couple emails that we didn't get to yesterday. One of them, somewhat topical. Ethan asks or states, "Hypothesis." Ben, by the way, Benoit. Mm. Big fit breaker, too. Oh, yeah? Mm. Yeah, at least lately. Last five years. Last five years, he has a ERA of 235 and a FIP of 315. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. All right, go ahead. Okay, hypothesis. Seeking to offset his reputation as a great tradesman and thereby soften the ground for future trades, Dombrowski no. deliberately no. overpaid no. for no. Kimbrough. No, 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 no. <laughs> okay, no. but... Uh, he didn't. No, he didn't. No, no he didn't. False. But I, 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 no. However, uh, his question is: How much explanatory power do you think this hypothesis offers, or None. more broadly, to what Zero. extent, if any, do no GMs extent. make trades with an eye toward knowing how such trades will affect their public reputation and therefore other GMs' expectations about subsequent trades? None. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I. You only get so many shots in this world. And uh, I, I like if you if I don't first of all, I don't think that people are paying that much attention to what kind of trades you make and like whether you're not to be traded with. I think they look at the players and they say, oh. like, I know that there are sort of stories about teams not wanting to trade with Billy Bean mm-hmm. after Moneyball came out. But if this is your strategy, I just don't think it's gonna it's gonna work. I just don't think some team is gonna. Now in fantasy, it definitely happens that you'll see someone make a trade, and then immediately uh, you're like, "Wow, that was a dumb trade. I'm gonna trade with that guy." Yeah. But but then you're not offering that guy a very good trade. You're trying to rip him off, mm-hmm. and that's not what Dave Dombrowski wants. I don't know what to say about this. Theory, except no. Yeah, well, the thing is, you can always leak a trade rumor if you if you really wanted to. And I think we've talked about this on a previous episode. Just, I don't know whether teams pay attention to the public reaction to their trades or, or whether they might leak a rumor just to kind of crowdsource it and see what the public thinks. And I don't know whether they do that. But they could do that. The point is it wouldn't be difficult to do that, really. And so you would always rather do that than actually make a trade that you believe to be bad just to, like, be a ringer. Just, I mean, or, you know, just, like, confuse people and lull them into a false sense of security or something. 
So I don't know whether anyone leaks trade rumors to see what the world thinks. Seems like it might be a useful piece of information to know. But I guess you also jeopardize the trade talks. Because if you leak an ongoing negotiation, then teams might not want to trade with you or that might kill the deal somehow. So it's risky and it probably doesn't really happen. And teams probably trust their own trading abilities. Maybe even too much. Mm -hmm. Okay, Mark asks, would baseball be better if the season was 12 months long? What would be the perfect season length? Three months. Yeah, stompers length. Mm -hmm. I do think the... I don't know. I mean, if you like baseball and you miss baseball when it's gone, then having baseball is probably better than not having it. Yeah, life so, life would be better right. if the baseball season was 12 months long. Baseball would be considerably worse. Yeah, the individual games would be worse, but it would still be better than not having any games for six months, I suppose. I mean, I don't... I don't mind the break. I think the off-season is okay. I, I do other things and don't miss baseball that much. I mean, I, I'm, I look forward to it when it comes back. But when it's over, I think, okay, that was a, that was a good length. That went on for a while. And it's interesting. <laughs> isn't it sort of interesting that we, that we need baseball? We require our baseball to be real. But, like, we don't require our, our novels or our television shows to be real. Like, we're perfectly happy rooting for fictional things. And uh -huh. so why – it's sort of interesting that we don't have fictional sports that we root for, that we get – I mean, we do. It's WWE, right? Yeah. And people like that. A lot of people really enjoy that. And a lot of people can't, can't possibly get their head around it. But you could imagine a world where – uh, somewhere in the future where we just embrace the, the, that none of us has any real power in any of this and that the stakes are not actually that real. We wouldn't really embrace that. But uh, you could imagine maybe uh, somewhere down the line there being some version of sports that doesn't require real people and that, <laughs> that you could cheer it anyway and that could then go on forever that you could always that you could basically have a non-stop baseball drama in your life but it would be somewhere between maybe scripted or maybe randomized uh -huh. i so like holographic baseball players or you like that book <laughs> right i know exactly what book you're thinking of which book am i thinking of the universal baseball association there were some edited parts out of that people <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Universal Baseball Association, Inc., J. Henry Waugh, proprietor, which is about a guy who uh, basically has a fictional baseball league uh, on his kitchen table uh, that he's quite passionate about. And what I guess, I don't know, what I'm not sure what I'm saying. People play uh, what I, strat. Yes, they do, although that's not quite so much a shared experience. Neither is the, neither is the book, by the way, but it's not a shared experience that we all watch together. Whereas we do all watch, um, you know, The Wire together. Mm -hmm. It's a bad example because nobody actually watched The Wire when it was on. But we do all watch The Sopranos, and we know that's fake. We know that's fiction, and yet the stakes seem really huge, and we all like to talk about it. I don't know. That's a, uh, a, long, a long way of saying that it would be nice if there was some version of uh, the, the drama that we get from baseball that could be in our lives all 12 months of the year. But it's unrealistic from a physical standpoint 
and the stakes, the, the longer the season goes, the stakes of each individual game get less. Yeah. And so you're actually like, it's a kind of inefficient way of packing joy into your life. What if though, like this can't happen because you need to have the, your minor leaguers available for as depth and reserves and all that. But do you think it would be enjoyable if the major league season went from April to September and the minor league season went from November to February? Would would you, do you think we would be super, super into minor league baseball? Yeah, definitely. Do you think that it's, uh, that in, I don't know, 10 years or so, the, um, the Dominican Winter League and the uh, career Caribbean leagues, which are extremely have extremely passionate followings and are played with extreme competitive levels, uh, but you know far away from us, will be regularly broadcast in good enough quality that baseball fans will turn them on and watch them the same way that uh, they watch uh, you know like non-major golf tournaments and non-major tennis tournaments. Yeah, I would think so. I mean, a lot of people do that already. They not a lot. streams or something yeah not a lot well, not, not a lot do and the quality is pretty awful That's right yeah part of the, i mean the production of it mm-hmm. so if it good. were more available yeah i think more people would watch it i don't know if it would it wouldn't be a it would still probably be a a minority it wouldn't be like every baseball fan would suddenly switch over to watching that or the arizona fall league or whatever but i think it would become more popular do you uh, know whether winter league participation is is trending up or down? Uh, I would think down for prominent players. You would think down yeah. for prominent players, but I don't know if you. I don't know the know numbers. Uh huh. Yeah, part of the problem is that you need enough prominent players that you can get the uh, the fan who's not into it just for prospect watching. Yeah. I mean, more and more fans are into it for prospect watching, but True. still not the majority. So we will be back tomorrow. You can send us emails at podcast at baseballperspectus.com. Join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild and subscribe and review and rate the podcast on iTunes. Support our sponsor, the Play Index of Baseball Reference. Use the coupon code BP. Get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. Talk to you soon.